Zechariah 10. We have a handout. It was, uh, I don't, I'm not sure if everybody has a copy, but there's a handout with a chart on it, and we'll take a look at that this evening. Remember Zechariah, he's writing uh, in the first six chapters. He's got a short message of returning, repentance. That Phoenician Israel would live in agreement with God's word, and then God would appear and dwell in their midst. That was the challenge. And then he has eight visions on a February evening in 519 B.C. Three of the visions talk about the Lord and the exiles coming back to Jerusalem to take over the temple, which had an idolatrous statue in it. He reinstituted the high priest. He had Zerubbabel, the governor, build the temple. And then the idolatrous statue was put into a basket, carried by two women with stork wings, wings, cast off into Babylon where a temple was set up for it. And then the Lord Jesus conquered Babylon and it fell in one day. And then the, the Holy Spirit of God had rest. Oh, evil has been banished. Idolatry over. Isn't that great how it ends? I love it. Hey, we have some ter- turbulent times here on earth, but the end is already guaranteed. We win. It is a guarantee. And you'll see that this evening as well. Then in chapters 7 and 8, there were people that came from Bethel to Zechariah two years later. So they're two years into building the temple. It'll be done in two more years. And they have a question about fasting. And God's response is, I never commanded you to fast. And you were fasting for your own selfish reasons. It was not authentic worship. So if you choose to fast, do it authentically and do it Um, do it as a way that will bring honor and glory to the Lord and not for yourself. And then, now we've gotten into chapters 9 through 14. And 9 through 14, the last half is written much later than everything prior. And in chapter 9, we get revealed to us that God, in human form, is going to ride on a donkey. He's going to have, he will have been saved or delivered from near defeat. And he will look afflicted, wounded, and stricken. He will ride into a, on a donkey into Jerusalem as their king, God in flesh. Zechariah 2.10 with Zechariah 9.9. Can you imagine? What a prophecy. People must have read that with amazement, saying, God in flesh, riding a donkey, stricken, afflicted, having been saved from near defeat. That's our king. It didn't make any sense to them, but us, now we look back and we say, praise Jesus, right? Praise Jesus. God's restoring the covenant with Abraham. He has not given up on the Jewish people. And so now we begin chapter 10. It's another unit. Chapter 9 is kind of its own unit, and it talks about the coming king in his humility and affliction. Now in chapter 10, we get another unit. And this unit is on, and we're going to cover it all this evening in 30 minutes. It is on bad and good shepherds. Shepherds were leaders in Israel. And when they had a bad shepherd, things went badly for the nation. And when they had a good shepherd, things went good for a nation. Does it kind of make sense? Whoever you follow, you will end up in those spots. So be careful who you follow, right? Be very careful who you follow because You will imitate them, you will follow their direction, and then that will either be to your destruction or it will be to your blessing. And so we're going to get this tonight. We're going to get a word of warning about the bad shepherds of Israel because Israel and Judah had some nasty kings. And those kings led the nation into divination, into idolatry. So bad, they put put, uh, idols in the high places. 
They required people to cast their babies into the arms of this statue called Molech to appease the gods, and their babies would be, would be burned to a crisp, tossed into the hot arms of the statue to appease a false god. This was, these were the bad shepherds. And then the mood changes in the chapter, and we are introduced to the good shepherd. This And this good shepherd is going to shock you. You know who it is. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to come back. He's going to kick the bad shepherds out, and he's going to say, I am the good shepherd who has given his life for the sheep. Follow me. And they will. So, okay, then the last part of the message, when God took Israel out of the land, remember by Assyria, Assyria came down and took the northern ten tribes, five things happened. That God did five things to the nation Israel that were punishment. And now in this text, you know what the good shepherd does? He gives, he undoes those five bad things with five good things. And I want you to end with the five good things. All right, that's where we're at. We'll take a look at chapter 10. Let's ask God's blessing as we, as we look at the text of Holy Scripture. Father in heaven, it is a joy that we come to the book of Zechariah. We know that his name means you remember. You remember Israel. You remember the covenant you made with with Abraham. You remember that they have been scattered throughout the nations for 2,000 years. You have remembered that you will gather them together. You have remembered that you will send Jesus Christ, our Savior, to be their physical king in a millennial empire centered around Jerusalem. These are all things you remember. But Father, you also remember us in the church age. You know us by name. You know every hair on our head. You know the heaviness of our heart. You know the secret trials and afflictions that we endure. You know the even public and open things. You know everything. And you remember us. You have showered grace upon grace upon your church. Thank you. Continue to guide us through your word. Empower us through the Holy Spirit. Cause us to burn with such a hot flame inside that everyone around us will say, they have spent time with Jesus. And we give you the glory. Amen. Zechariah chapter 10, let's jump right into it. Here are the bad shepherds, verses 1 through 3a. He jumps right in on this text. Ask the Lord for rain. In the time of the latter rain, the Lord will make flashing clouds. He will give them showers of rain, grass in the field for everyone. Stop. All right, that's where, we, that's where we're at. Simply, we are told, Zechariah tells the people, you pray, you call on the Lord for rain. Here's why. In Leviticus 26, God made a, God made a condition with Israel. If they, if they rebel against him and if they go into idolatry, God is going to stop the heavens from bringing rain and their land will dry up. But if they return with a broken heart to live in agreement with God's word, God will open the heavens and pour forth the rain and the ground will produce in huge, huge, magnificent quantities. So that's Leviticus 26. It's a great, important chapter. Read it in light of the first verse. Now, why would Zechariah have to tell the people to pray to God? Because God is the creator of the universe. He's the only one that can make it rain. Why would Zechariah need to tell the people to pray to God for rain. Because they weren't praying to God for rain, they were praying to idols. 
See, they had turned to idols. So Zechariah, again, in a significant way, tells them, ask the Lord for rain in the time of the latter rain. The Lord will make flashing clouds. He's the one who does it, right? When Israel repents, the clouds will fall with rain and the grass and the vegetation will bloom. It says he will give them showers of rain, grass in the field for everyone. What a blessing. The issue was, here's the problem. Why did they go into Babylon in the first place? Idolatry. They had turned from the true God to other gods. They had put their affections in things that are not alive. They had actually gloried in the creature rather than in the creator. And so God took them out of the land for 70 years, and then he put them back in. And Zechariah warned them early on, don't make the mistake of your fathers. Here it has been now probably another 20 or 30 years, and the next generation has slipped up and followed the way of their fathers. They're back into idolatry. Idolatry is when we love anything more than the Lord Jesus Christ. When there's anything that we need or grasp or need to have to satisfy apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, you guys, this world is attractive to the sinner. It is attractive to our sin nature. And this whole world beckons us to worship it. Every bar is full, even on a snowy day. Why? Because that's where people think I can go to be satisfied. I can go to finally remove the ache and the pain of my miserable, wretched life. And I'm going to find it here. And after I drink all of this, I'm going to feel sick. And then the the numbness is going to wear off. And I'm going to need to return to that and return to that and return to that. That is what the world is doing. They are seeking after idolatry. And they cannot find the answer. We have the answer. Look at what happens when when people fall into idolatry. Verse 2. For the idols speak delusion. All right? They speak delusion. The div- those are the idols. That's literally the teraphim. It's like the household statues people would, would put up. It speaks delusion. It lies. It tricks them. It manipulates. It promises something and offers nothing. Do we have any household gods in our, in our houses? Do we have any little statues that we put up and bow down to? I would say no, but then I would say yes. The TV. The TV is an idolatrous being. Could it be used for good? Sure. But I'll tell you what, it is destroyed and infiltrated. We are letting into our homes way more sin and filth than we would ever permit like a person in reality come and do. If you were to look at any movie or TV show that most Christians watch, and they would say, well, that's just TV, no big deal. What if those actors actually came into the living room and acted it out? in front of your children or your family? Would you be like, hey, that's entertainment, cool. You'd be like, you'd be horrified. That's like wickedness. But on the TV screen, it's not a big deal because it's just TV screen. But do you know how impacting it is in our hearts and our minds? My students at school, they know every program, every sports figure, they know every rock star. They do not know the truth of God's word at all. It's never been put into their heart and life. So these idols... They speak delusion. The diviners, these are the, the psychics. These are the people that uh, others run to. They, they envision lies. They have dreams, and, and they tell false dreams. Listen, all of these idols, they comfort in vain. They promise much, 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 but they deliver nothing. And you know what? I'll tell you what. I'm sorry to say this, but the church is actually very idolatrous for the most part. They are looking for comfort, 
and receiving vanity and emptiness. And the longer that the church is on the world, the worldly, the more worldly the church is really getting. It's going to come down, I think, just to a remnant that cares about godliness and holiness and truth and holy living. I talk to some people about holy living. They think I'm legalistic. I'm like, wait a minute. But Christ says, don't do these things. Well, that's legalistic. Well, not if Christ tells me to do it. It's obedience if Christ tells me to do it. It's not legalism. I'm not doing it to earn favor with God. I'm living a life that's characterized after who he is and what his, what his character and holy standard is. Well, it says this, Therefore, the people wend their way like sheep. They are in trouble because there is no shepherd. It's the failure of leadership. There was no shepherd to guide them to truth and to green pastures, and therefore they wandered in the wilderness, eating the scrub and the brush of the world. And I'll say that's true in the church too. Pastors are called to be under shepherds. And my goal, really it is my heart's goal and desire, is to feed you truth. That you would walk away saying, our God is great. This is what Jesus is doing. Here's what he's going to do. Here's what he's done. Here's what he, here's what he is to us. Oh, it's just... And that's what I want you to, to capture. But I'll tell you what. Um, Jesus himself, remember in Matthew 9? Jesus looked at the whole crowd and what did he say? The disciples looked at the whole crowd and said, what a nuisance. Oh, get them away. We like Jesus to have our, our little time together as a group of 13. Here a huge crowd is following and Jesus says he was, he was groaning in his inner being, in his guts. And he said he looked out on the crowd as sheep without a shepherd. They were just, where were they going? Into it. They were in idolatry. They were lovers of pleasure and lovers of man and they were not lovers of God. And so we need to have that same heart. So that's false leaders. And you know what? Take your Bibles. Go with me to chapter 11. We'll, we'll do this text next. Chapter 11, 1 through 3. Here is the demise of the false teachers, of the false leaders. Chapter 11, verses 1, 2, and 3. Open your doors, O Lebanon. Lebanon and Bashan are code words. Now, you and I in the Western culture, we don't get it, but these are code words used for Israel. uh, Isaiah used them in chapter 2 to refer to the kings, priests, and prophets that were false. They were leading the people astray. The kings, priests, and prophets, they were... Lebanon, the tall cedars of Lebanon, they were actually people. And the oaks of Bashan were rulers, governors, kings, princes that would lead people astray. Here's what the truth is about these individuals. God says, open your doors, O Lebanon, that fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen. He's going to take the bad leaders out. Because the mighty trees are ruined, wail, O oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has come down. All of those who led the people astray at some point are going to be taken out of the picture. They're not yet, but when Jesus comes back in his second coming, he is going to take every bad leader, kick them out of Israel, and he alone will be left. And every knee shall bow to Jesus and Jesus alone. He says in verse 3, there is the sound of wailing shepherds. Why are the shepherds wailing? Because they got kicked out, because they were mean to the flock. They abused God's flock, led them into idolatry. God kicks them out in the future. He takes over, and, and all the, the bad leaders, the false teachers, are wailing shepherds. For their glory, it's in ruins. There's the sound of roaring lions. For the pride of the Jordan is in ruins. Just a picturesque way of saying, these mighty leaders, God's going to take down. 
you'll take him out. Now let's look at the good shepherd. Back to the beginning of chapter 10, verse 3. Here's the good shepherd. My anger is kindled against the shepherds. See, God is angry when leaders do not lead. Do you remember what Hosea said? Like priest, like people. Whoever the high priest was, that's the way the whole, that's the, way the whole nation went. If he was godly, the whole nation kind of followed his pattern of godliness. If he was evil, the whole nation followed his evil. So Hosea gave a condemnation, like priest, like people. Here God is saying, my anger is kindled against the shepherds, and I will punish the goatherds. Now there's a play in words in the Hebrew. The word punish is the same word for the next verse, for the Lord of hosts will visit his flock. Punish and visit are the same word in Hebrew. Because in the Hebrew, it means you're visiting to take care of something. Either you're going to visit to punish, or you're going to visit to bless. Same word. So it's kind of a play on words. God's going to come, and what is he going to do to the goat herds? He's going to punish them. What is he going to do to his flock, his own children? He will visit them. But who, look, look who's visiting in this verse. Verse 3, For the Lord of hosts will visit his flock. That is Jesus Christ. God in human flesh coming to visit his children. He did that the first time 2,000 years ago. He was crucified and ascended to heaven. He is coming back again at any moment for the church. And then he's going to come and he's going to visit Israel again. Now look at this. It's the house of Judah. And he will make them as his royal horse in the battle. You know, the horse was the weapon of choice back then. These gigantic war horses could leap up on their back, hind legs, and then trample the people in front of them. More people died of horse, horses tromping on them in a battle than with spear or sword. More because the war horses would just charge and with their mighty front hooves just pound down the enemy. And that's what God's going to do, and he's going to use the house of Judah to do it. Now, listen to these descriptions of the good shepherd. Verse 4, from him comes the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow. Now, all three of these are phenomenal. Listen, everybody, the cornerstone. You know what it is. The cornerstone is the thing that makes the whole building right. It's that which makes the building square and which is the whole building rests on the cornerstone. The whole kingdom of Israel is going to rest on the person of Jesus Christ. And nothing is right on this world until he's seated in Jerusalem on the throne. You agree? Nothing is right. We need to be in heaven with him as his bride. Israel needs to be in their land as believers, and Jesus needs to be sitting on the throne. And the devil needs to be locked up in the lake of fire. Then everything's right. But right now, everything is out of order. Satan's on the earth. The church is on the earth. Israel's not in their land, and Jesus isn't on the throne. So we're living in chaos right now, but there is coming a day when Jesus, who is our cornerstone, He will sit in Jerusalem and everything will be rock solid stable. Now, do you know what the word tent peg means? This word is used twice in the Hebrew. We're not nomadic people, I don't think. Even if we are, we move from house to house or apartment to apartment. We don't go tent to tent like the Bedouins. Do you know the most important thing if you're in a windy, sandy desert and you have a tent? The tent peg. What do you need for the tent peg? It sticks in the ground to keep the tent in place. Jesus being the tent peg... He is going to keep the kingdom lasting for how long? Forever. It will have no end. Like America has an end. 
China might take over. Who knows what's going to happen to America? We are not guaranteed longevity. Israel is going to be a kingdom forever because Jesus is the tent peg. He's the one that will stick in the ground and nothing can shake that kingdom. Do you agree? But there's another way the word tent peg is used, and I think it's, this is what I think Zachariah is thinking. Now, if you go into most people's houses, you'll find a hutch. And what's in the hutch? China or dishes that people like. I mean, people like to showcase. Don't touch the china. You can't eat on it. It's like, I think, did we ever have dishes we couldn't eat on, Mom? I think everything in our house was Tupperware or plastic. Just, that was it. We loved it. It was just, you know, but Mom, Mom had some nice stuff, and, and she would say about that nice stuff, don't touch. Why? Because it kind of displays the glory of the house. So what the Jewish person would do is they would have in their house, as you walk in, a post that would support the ceiling. And on the post was a peg, the same word used in Zechariah. Do you know what they hung on the peg? All of their glory. They would put pots and pans that were metal that they had to work hard and long for, and it cost very much, they would put those there. Anything of the highest of value would be put on the tent peg, and it's used in Isaiah 22 this way for Elohim. Well, we don't have time to go there, but look at Isaiah 22, the same word. It's used to display the glory of the house with all the beauty of the utensils and the pans and the, and the pottery. It would hang on the, off of this peg showing the glory of the house. Do you want to know why Jesus is the tent peg? Because he is the full glory of God seated on the throne. He is the beauty of beauty. He is the song of songs. He is the musician of all musicians. He is the poet of all poets. He is the mathematician of all mathematicians. He is everything, and all of his glory will be displayed in the kingdom. It is going to be glorious. When you and I walk with Jesus into the holy city, Jerusalem, at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, The city is going to dazzle us with its colors and the sounds and the food and the excitement and the cheering and the flags and the branches. And then we're going to watch him. And when he sits down, he will just radiate the glory of the sun on earth. It's going to be incredible. That's what the tempeg is. That's That's what's coming. That's the good shepherd. He's the cornerstone. He's the tent peg. He's the battle bow. You know what a battle bow is? It is the weapon used to shoot arrows in a battle. He is the warrior. He is the fierce warrior that will down every enemy. That's our God. That's Israel's God. That's the church's God. Do you guys feel great about that? I do. From him, the end of verse 4, from him, every ruler together, I think better in the Hebrew, from him, every ruler, every oppressor will disappear. He will destroy every enemy. Listen, they, verse 5, they, that's Judah, the, the children of Judah, they shall be like mighty men who tread down their enemies in the mire of the streets in the battle. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and the riders on horses shall be put to shame. Now this takes place right before he's seated on his throne. This is all future, everybody. This has not happened yet. Jesus is going to come from heaven in a, on a white horse with power and great glory. The city will, will be uh, Jerusalem, and the people in there are in flesh and blood bodies like us. And they're going to get tired, and they're going to want to eat and drink and sleep because a battle is raging. And they're going to go in the streets, and they're going to get mired down in the mud, and the enemies are going to pour over the walls. All Who are the enemies? All the nations, Zechariah 12, we're going to be there in a little bit. Zechariah 12 says all the nations will surround Jerusalem and enter the city to kill the believers. They're going to be mired in the streets. 
They're going to have like machine guns that aren't working. And they're going to watch the enemy come and they know we're dead. But Jesus, he's going to come down at the, just when defeat is almost imminent. And he's going to give them a great victory and they will win. That's a, that's, a, that's a battle. Isn't that great? That's the good shepherd. If you follow the bad shepherd, what do you get? Idolatry, vanity. You get sin and misery and destruction and death. You follow the good shepherd, what do you get? Victory over all of your enemies and blessing of the glory of God forever. It is such an easy choice, but why doesn't the world want Christ? They want the world. They don't want Christ. I don't get it. But let's keep going. Now, here, okay, here are the five things. I'm going to give them to you quick. We don't have to spend much time on each one. But if you have your chart, if you're on the back side of your chart as a table, here are five things in the right-hand column that God did to Israel in 722 B.C. Are you ready? The first one, 2 Kings 17, verse 20. They were deserted by God. They were deserted. Number one, God deserted them. He left them alone. He did not fight on their behalf. So when the Assyrians came, they had no strength. Wait a minute. Who's the strength of the church today? The Holy Spirit. Could it be that the Holy Spirit would ever leave the church? Absolutely. Revelation 2 and 3 says it. If the Holy Spirit were to leave our church, we would be without strength. We would be unable to do anything. Oh, I bet you know what? I bet we'd have tons of programs. I bet we'd have tons of people. But it wouldn't matter. You you all agree? Wow. You better think about that. So number one, they were deserted by God in the right-hand column. The second... Right-hand column, second one down. Isaiah 8, verses 21 through 22. They were in distress. God put them in distress. They were hungry. They were afflicted. Third, on the way down, there was destruction. Isaiah 7, verse 18. Interesting terminology in Isaiah 7, verse 18. The Lord whistles. I can't really whistle. The, word, the Lord whistles to two countries, Assyria and Egypt. He's like, get over here. He calls the two countries, and the two countries destroy Israel. Take him captive, the ten tribes. So do you see what he did? He destroyed the nation by whistling to the enemy. Fourth, in the right-hand column, there was deportation. Deportation. He removed them from the promised land. He kicked them out of their own land he gave them. That was 2 Kings 17.6. And the last thing he did? Desolation. The land was desolate and depopulated. Isaiah 6 says that there, out of all the grand nation of Israel, at the huge population of Israel, they were tiny, tiny, tiny in number. Depopulated. The land was desolate. That's where it laid for a long time. But you know what's going to happen in the future? Now let's go back to Zechariah 10. On the left-hand column, here are the five things God's going to do and will be done. Number one, verse 6, he will restore them. He will restore them. They were deserted by God. He's going to restore them. Listen to verse 6. I will, God says, I will strengthen the house of Judah. I will save the house of Joseph. That's all 12 tribes. 
I will bring them back because I have mercy on them. See, it's not because they deserved it. It's because God's merciful. They shall be as though, listen to this, listen to this verse. They shall be as though I had not cast them aside. He at one time deserted them, but when he comes back, it's going to be like he never did it to them. It will be as though he never cast them aside in the first place. For I am the Lord their God, and I will hear them. Don't you love that? They were once deserted, but God now says, I restore you. Verse 7, here's the second one in the left-hand column. Rejoicing. Rejoicing. They were in distress, hungry and afflicted, but now they're rejoicing. Here's what it says in verse 7. Those of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man. And their heart shall rejoice as if with wine. Yes, their children shall see it and be glad. Their heart will rejoice, shall rejoice in the Lord. Hmm, interesting. I've had this verse used against me a number of times about alcohol. Because it says, Those of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man, and their heart shall rejoice as if with wine. And people say, See, there you go, some moderate drinking. We are happy, happy, happy people. And I say, You're not reading scripture correctly. The text that this is found in is in Isaiah 24, verse 7. Let me give you the Isaiah 24, verse 7. Here's what it says about the wine that makes the... And it's it's actually very identical to that same text. Isaiah chapter 42... Hang on a minute. What did I say? 24, 7, yes. Isaiah 20... Listen to this. Isaiah 24... I just want you to see the context when you put all of Scripture together. God is talking about what he's going to do to Israel because of their wickedness and sin. The earth mourns, fade away. The, earth, the world languishes and fades away. The haughty people of the earth languish. It doesn't sound good. The curse has devoured the earth. Verse 7, the new wine fails. The vine languishes. All the merry-hearted sigh. Why do the merry-hearted sigh? Because there's no grape harvest, there's no vines, there's no, there's no juice, there's nothing to drink. They are without drink. So now, all of a sudden, God's going to rejoice the distress, and he's going to cause the vineyards to flood with grapes, and the new wine will be a place... The, the, vin, the, the uh, wine press was a place of rejoicing. Why? Because now you have something to drink besides bitter water. Now you have something to drink Um, of the freshest and the greatest, because the vineyards were so plentiful over there. So that was the idea. It's not that they were getting drunk so merry. That's where their rejoicing was coming from. But it was just the fact that the new wine doesn't languish anymore. The vineyards, the grape juice production has been phenomenal. Then he goes on, back in Zechariah chapter 10. Yes, the children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. Look at the next one down. The third one. Before Israel was destroyed by the Lord, there was destruction. Now they are redeemed. Verse 8, they are redeemed. Remember how they were destroyed? God whistled to Assyria and Egypt. Now look at what he does. Verse 8, I will whistle for them. Hey, who's the them? It's Israel. Where are they? They're in every nation of the world. There's Jewish people in Poland. There's Jewish people in every European country. There's Jewish people in Russia. There's Jewish people in Africa. There's Jewish people in South America, North America, in the Philippine Islands. There's Jewish people all over. And someday the Lord is going to whistle 
And all the Jewish people come out of there. Remember how I mentioned it this morning? Like if you have mashed potatoes and you put some pepper in it and then you mix it all up, you got pepper everywhere in the mashed potatoes. God is simply going to whistle and all the black pepper is going to come out of there. All the Jewish people are going to come out of every country back to the land. They are redeemed. He says, I will whistle for them and gather them, his children. I will redeem them. How does he redeem them? through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, and they shall increase as they once increased. They're going to be like the stars of the sky. They were a remnant. They were knocked down to just a few people. Now they're going to flood the world. Praise God. Hey, verse 9. Remember how they were deported, removed from the land? Guess what this one is. The next block down, verse 9, they return. They return to the land. Here's what God says, verse 9. I will sow them among the peoples. That's when they were dispersed. And they shall remember me in far countries. Isn't it amazing that the Jewish people all over the world have their Hebrew Bible and they remember Jehovah of the Old Testament? Someday they're going to know the Jesus is Jehovah. They shall remember me in far countries. They shall live together with their children and they shall return. It is, listen, it is a guarantee they're going to return to the land. So once deported, now God's going to undo that, and they will all come back to the promised land. They haven't done that yet, by the way, but they will someday. God's going to whistle. They'll come back. And then the last one, they were desolate, and the land was desolate. They were depopulated. Now, verse 10, they're going to be repopulated. Repopulated. Listen as we finish up here. Two more ver- a couple more verses, and we're done. I will also bring them back from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. I will bring them into the land of Gilead, that's the mountains, and Lebanon, that's the trees. I think speaking of the power and glory of the kingdom. Until no more room is found for them. They're going to be that populous. Once depopulated, they're going to be so numerous, repopulated, that there's no more room for the Jewish people. He shall pass through the sea with affliction, just like the, remember the first exodus? Moses lifts up his arms, and the Red Sea parts, and the nation Israel crosses. Now Jesus whistles, the nations part, and Israel returns to the land in glory. It's a second exodus. So you get all this imagery of the exodus. Jesus is going to pass through the sea with affliction. He'll strike the waves of the sea. All the depths of the river shall dry up, taken right out of Isaiah 11. Then the pride of Assyria shall be brought down, just like the Pharaoh of Egypt was. The scepter of Egypt shall depart. It's all second exodus. It's all another exodus. But not Moses this time. Jesus. Hey, do you guys like that? The good shepherd is going to undo all the evil that the bad shepherds brought about. And God is going to do the same thing in the church. He's going to make this church a holy, blameless bride to present to the Father someday. Regardless of who the pastors are, Jesus is going to come and clean it all up. But we want to be right with him, don't we? We want to be right and true according to the word. I have one last verse. It's going to be an easy one. Look at the guarantee. So I will strengthen them in the Lord, Jesus says. It's a guarantee. He will strengthen them spiritually. Not just physically, but spiritually. And they shall walk up and down in his name. They're not going to walk up and down in the names of their idols anymore. Dagon and the God of harvest and the God of rain and the God of the moon. They're going to walk in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You know what it means to walk up and down the earth? They're going to have dominion over all this planet. It will be ruled by Israel with the Jewish king, Messiah Jesus, on the throne. 
And we are the bride of Christ serving at his side. What a glory. Isn't our God good? He is so good. So what does that do for us today? Here it is. Pray for your leaders. Pray. I'll tell you what. Satan has tried to attack me desperately. I mean, really. He's attacked this church through our doctrine. He's, he's attacked this church through our practice. How do we live out our, our faith? He's attacked this church and our relationships. You know, he's got so many ways to attack our church. We better be on guard. We better be prayed up. We need to pray, pray, pray. And we need to trust the Lord. We need to be men and women of the book. We need to be reaching the last. I mean, all the things you're doing. Praise the Lord. You're doing it. You are reaching the world. Praise God. And we're, and we're united, and we're healthy and strong. Be careful. That's when it's easy to say, wow, everything's going great. No, we, we trust, we abandon everything and trust the Lord, right? So we want good, godly leadership as the church moves on into 2018. Um, pray. All right. Smite the shepherd and the sheep get scattered. So we'll watch out for one another, won't we? Shepherd and, and sheep and Jesus, the good shepherd overall. Oh, glad for that. Father, thank you for this truth of this text. These chapters are such a delight. There's so much background and and history and future prophecy. But I pray that we've at least made an attempt and, and now the Holy Spirit can work with these, this text and work with these thoughts. As we just remember, you are going to come back and undo all the evil that this world has done. And you're going to make everything right. Our, our life will be right. Our relationships will be right. Our finances will be right. Our emotions will be right. Our bodies will be right. Someday, Father, everything will be made new and right again. Until then, we trust Jesus. We rely on your word, and we're thankful for one another. So we have a support, encouraging system here where we can grow to be more like Jesus. Thank you again for this church. Oh, thank you for their hearts and their attitudes and their spirit. It really is a lovely thing. And Father, next week, bless Wyatt. Guide his mouth as he preaches the word. Just equip him and empower him. Thank you for the deacons who will be serving. Thank you for all the men and women doing the nursery and the music and oh, all of those ministries while we're gone. Protect this church, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. Um, we're not leaving.